All right, Luke chapter 13 is where we will be this morning. Luke chapter 13. Back kind of full stride in our series now. Jesus for everyone, working our way through the book verse by verse. If you've just joined, joined us uh, kind of first of the year, maybe, maybe even back around Christmas, you may not know this is kind of what we do. We just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's probably about 85-90% of what our Sunday mornings look like, and we are going through Luke. Been in Luke for about a year, a little over a year and a half now, or close to a year and a half now. Uh, and we are on chapter 13, and this morning we're going to see what is kind of the epitome of the series title, Jesus for Everyone, but right alongside that we will see that while Jesus is for everyone, uh, not everyone actually will be for Jesus. We've seen that, that dynamic play out several times so far in this book, and we will see it uh, quite a bit more as we go, especially the back half of this uh, this book. What I said last week is that this little section here, and honestly, maybe the, the rest of the book of Luke, you could entitle uh, Why Jesus Was Killed. Uh, this message today would be a, a very like clear picture of, of, of what kind of led Jesus down that path where uh, eventually he would be hung on a cross. So much happens uh, in these chapters that seem to be uh, to us, pretty innocuous, pretty benign, pretty, pretty just simple, mild, maybe mildly offensive teaching, but not very offensive teaching. Certainly not uh, enough that would, uh, would result in someone being killed for it. But in a very real sense, what Jesus says today and in these chapters uh, is what led him that way. And we'll see today that Luke emphasizes that, that all of this is happening, all of his teaching, all of, all of what's going on in this, in this uh, section here. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He is step by step walking towards his death. Uh, and what we will, we will see here in the next few weeks is that he very intentionally uh, is making his way towards Jerusalem. And he very much knew what likely awaited him whenever he got there. So keep that in mind whenever you hear Jesus' words uh, today. Last night I had a chance to watch UT's basketball game. That was a fun one to watch if you're a UT fan. Uh, not so much if you're a Texas A&M fan, but it was fun. Uh, as a UT fan, I enjoyed getting to, uh, to watch that. Additionally, I kept up on Twitter with the Braves, who had their first spring training game, uh, kicked things off, and uh, we've got March Madness just around the corner. We've got opening day that can't get here quite quick enough for me. Uh, I am a baseball fan. I am a UT fan. I am a Braves fan. That is uh, who I am, and uh, my relationship with sports has changed a lot uh, through the years. I'm not nearly as moody as I used to be whenever my teams uh, lose. Uh, I'm not nearly as dialed into every nuance of every game for uh, every team that I follow, though I'm still pretty deep in it, uh, just not quite, quite what I was. So, like, if, if you were to kind of follow me around and see everything, you would be like, no, you're, you're you, like that... You are definitely way in there, uh, but not, not the way I used to be. So um, I have cheered for my teams when they are really good and when they are really, really bad. Uh, I have several decades deep into my fandom at this point, which raises a very hotly debated question within sports circles. Can I say we whenever I am referring to my favorite team? When I talk about Tennessee football, can I say 
we, or when I am talking about the Braves, can I say we won that game? We need this type of player on the team. We need to be uh, better here. We won the World Series two years ago, or should it be they? They won the World Series two years ago. What qualifies me to be able to use the first person pronoun? Just out of curiosity, and I know some of you have no opinion, in which case you don't have to vote here. Who would be solidly in the you can say we camp if you are a fan of a team? Show of hands. Okay, who says you cannot say we if you are a fan but you are not actually a player or a coach? See, look, I thought this would be the opposite. I like this. All right, so you guys are, are inclusive. You guys are all in. Here's, here's my rules that I have come down uh, on this one. Uh, in order to be able to say we, now obviously if you are on the team, if you are directly involved in some even like capacity in, in administration of a team, uh, you can say we. If you work for the club, you can say we. Uh, that, all, that all applies. But if you're just, if you're just a fan, here's what I say. Uh, one, you have to be able to follow your team no matter their record. It does not matter if they are good. It does not matter if they are bad. It does not matter if they have a chance to win everything or if they have a chance to win nothing. You have to follow like deeply with your team every season. You have to endure the losses as well as uh, celebrate the win. So that's one. And two, you have to be invested in both your time and your money with this team. Uh, as you follow the team, you have to have that. You cannot just casually check the score so that you can discuss it whenever you walk into church on Sunday morning and just be like, hey, did you see that? Yeah, I've only caught one or two games this year. You can't say we if that is you, right? You have to be dialed in, and, and, and you also have to be, when the, when the team is like below 500, not doing well, you also have to be able to see Oh, did you see that? That was painful. That was terrible. Oh, my gosh, this coach is terrible. Whatever. You've got to be invested. So if those two things are true of you, I think that you can say we. That is my rule. I don't always say we just out of respect for the players. Uh, but I also don't hesitate. Uh, if it comes out, then I am totally fine with that. So the way I figure is I have been watching UT play football longer than these players have been alive at this point. Uh, and with the current transfer portal rules, I am probably more committed to the University of Tennessee's football program than some of those players are, uh, even though they're the ones getting up at 4 a.m. to work out, and I am certainly not. Uh, but I, I am well invested many decades in, and so uh, I, I am as much a brave as, as any Atlanta brave that's out there. They just don't pay me as well. So that's, that's how I see it. That's how I def define it. If you disagree, that's fine. Uh, but I'll use my first-person pronouns all I want. And our text today, believe it or not, is actually kind of related to that. Jesus is going to help us define the we of our faith. Who can use the first-person pronoun whenever we say that we are followers of God? He's going to help us see just who can, who, who can claim that first-person pronoun and surprise He's got a def definition that is wildly different than the people that are listening to him and a definition that is wildly different from the one that most of our culture uses today, even within uh, the church. And so, as I said, it's, it's part of his defining of the, of the we here is going to be part of what put him on a cross, but it's also the best news that any of us can hear this morning. So with that, let's get into Luke chapter 13, verse 18. 
He said, therefore, and this is uh, right after uh, the, the events of last week where the, uh, the lady was healed and she was able to stand upright. And uh, in, in verse 18, it says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? So he's continuing his teaching and he's, he's, he's uh, wanting to talk about the kingdom of God. He's, he's talked about uh, th- this lady and how she is healed. And now he transitions into making a point And he's got two analogies he wants us to see. What is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree. And the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. So again, Jesus gives these two, uh, these little parables, these little analogies here, and they seem pretty benign. Who's going to be offended about a mustard seed and some yeast? Pretty uh, uh, non-offensive here. You're talking about two of the smallest things that are Uh, that are out there he's not calling out a pharisee he's not performing a miracle he's not stepping on anyone's toes at least in our initial reading that's what it sounds like he's not stepping on anyone's toes he's just giving a quick analogy for his listeners but these two little parables are packed with meaning jesus is teaching his followers about the kingdom of god but the way he describes it is where where we can miss this. We, we can totally have this go right by us because we're used to this kind of language about mustard seeds and leaven, and it's just kind of, uh, this is like church talk. Nobody talks about mustard seeds outside of, outside of church, but we do because Jesus talks about it some, and you can kind of go right by us. But he's teaching his followers about the kingdom of God, and the way he describes it is nothing like anyone would have expected that was listening to him. You see, the main way of thinking for the, for, for the Jews was that the kingdom of God meant that the nation of Israel and that the, the Messiah was coming to be a liberator of the Jewish people. He was going to be a, a ruler of the land. He was going to be a king that was uh, to reign over a newly freed people that had been set free from their uh, oppressors. The kingdom of God was indeed coming, and it was going to be led by this messianic figure this 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 person that was coming to, uh, to 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 really change the whole dynamic of what was happening uh, around them the kingdom of god was coming and it was going to look like military rule and political dominance it was going to look like a flash of lightning and a roar of thunder it was going to be a sight to behold and then jesus shows up says he's the messiah and then he says y'all have completely misunderstood the signs of the times. You have been looking for the wrong thing. You are looking for thunder and lightning and these big, like, coming in like a, like, like a, an army coming in to take things over. You're looking for this big, massive thing to happen. But the kingdom of God is more like, well, it's more, it's more like a, a, a mustard seed here. It's more like that. That's not thunder and lightning. That is not like a grand entrance coming in to set the people free. That is basically nothing. And Jesus says that is what the kingdom of God looks like. And we read right by that because we're used to this mustard seed language, the illustration that Jesus has used before about the nature of faith. We've heard this language before and we don't bat an eye. 
These Jews, though, they had never heard anything like this. This is not what their rabbis had, had taught them. This is not what they had heard in synagogue. This is, this is not what they had, had been taught by their mother and their father about the nature of the kingdom of God and what God was going to do through the Messiah. A mustard seed? Are you kidding me? Yeast? Are you kidding me? These are incredibly tiny things. The kingdom of God would be loud and large and dominant. And these two things that Jesus has just said the kingdom of God is like are absolutely not that at all. So why did Jesus choose these two things for this object lesson? Why did he choose these things to say this is what the kingdom of God is like? Well, if you follow his metaphor, everyone is right on some level. The kingdom of God would be large and impressive, eventually. Just not at all in the way that they had assumed that it would be. The general premise of both of these analogies is this, that the kingdom starts off small and unimpressive, something almost no one would notice, but over time, slowly, patiently, the kingdom grows as it spreads. And, even, and, and, and given enough time, the kingdom does actually become large and impressive. In the case with the mustard seed, it turns into a large tree. Uh, and and, the, and the, the, the metaphor here is that as the kingdom grows, it moves upward and outward. So this is the, the two ways in which the kingdom grows. So the first is that the kingdom grows upward and outward. It does not stay small and hidden forever. Instead, it grows in such a way that everyone can see it. And not only can they see it, they can eventually find refuge in it. This language about how the birds of the air can find refuge in it, that is, that, that, that is intended to show that the kingdom is, is large enough that everyone can benefit from the shade and the sturdiness of its branches. Show that next picture uh, of the, the tree, that is what that little seed eventually can turn into. Massive, huge. It is a dense tree. It is a tree that birds can find a home. It is a tree that, that grows so much larger out of proportion to the small little seed and where it begins. This is a metaphor about how the kingdom welcomes all and moves beyond the limited scope of just the Jewish people. The kingdom gives home to everyone. It moves upward and outward, and it grows in a very visible way, eventually. But when you first see it, it's small and unimpressive, and you don't even notice that it's there. The second way that this grows, the second way the kingdom grows the first was upward and outward. The second way is inward and through. The yeast is also very, very small, but it, it works its way through everything. It says 50 pounds of uh, flour. That is a lot of flour. This, this would have been a massive amount for one batch to be made, especially uh, at that time. Likely would have, fell, uh, would have, have fed well over 100 people. Yet a tiny amount of yeast is all 
that is needed. It would be as if somebody were going to make a loaf of bread for each one of us in here uh, this morning, and they would have begun with just a tiniest little bit of, of yeast. And if I had it up here, you couldn't even see it from where you're sitting because it would be such a small amount, yet it's going to leaven the whole, uh, the whole batch of dough so that uh, eventually the dough will rise and there will be bread where everyone will be fed by it. A tiny amount of yeast is all that is needed because of the way that it works as it works its way through the whole batch. Here Jesus is emphasizing that the kingdom grows in ways that are invisible, that we cannot see. And though you may not see it working, rest assured that God's kingdom is growing even when you can't see it, even when it started with just something as small as this little bit of yeast. And then just like the initial, initial analogy with the mustard seed is saying that it grows large enough where everyone can find refuge, Jesus is saying that yeast leavens the whole batch so that everyone can be fed. It goes out and it is for everyone. So the kingdom is growing visibly, upward and outward, and it is growing invisibly, inward and through for his listeners at the time this would have been uh, th- this would have been uh, important so that he could convey to them the radically different way that Jesus was about to establish this kingdom he was the messiah he didn't shy away from this truth that he was the messiah but what was about to happen whenever he went to Jerusalem was going to look very, very different than what most Jewish people would have assumed about their Messiah. They needed to adjust their expectations because this Messiah wasn't coming with thunder and lightning and an army, but with yeast and a mustard seed. Nothing what they would have expected. Small beginnings. But those small beginnings would lead to an almost immeasurable result. For us today, we celebrate that Jesus, with 12 guys that were not really strategic thinkers, not quick, quick learners, not great students, he launched a mission that is still expanding today. That all the nations of the world can nest in its branches. That all the nations of the world can be fed by the bread of life. And that includes Gentiles like you and me. Jesus, in this little parable, just these two small little analogies that he gives, has redefined who can say we whenever it comes to belonging to the kingdom of God. We can say that God's kingdom is also for us, not just them, the Jews, but also for us. That is good news for you. That is good news for us. But it is also news that we'll get, that we'll end up getting Jesus hung on a cross. And he knew it. As we celebrate today all the ways that we can see the kingdom of God blessing the world, all the ways in which uh, the the Christian faith has blessed the the world today and throughout uh, centuries. At the same time, we know that there is so much more that we cannot see that has happened. 
that we will never see here on this earth because God's kingdom is always moving, always growing, always expanding, and nothing Satan has ever done, including trying to crush the mustard seed, has ever stopped his kingdom from growing. So when that little bit of teaching had concluded, Luke reminds us that that Jesus is telling everyone these things while he's headed toward Jerusalem. And after Luke reminds us, Jesus is going to be asked a question. And not a random question, as it's going to seem when you hear it, uh, but one I'm pretty sure ties into these two analogies. So let's look. Luke 13, verse 22. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Luke is just highlighting that Jesus is on his way. And then someone says in verse 23, Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? Now that is not an objective question uh, from from listening to Jesus' teaching and and trying to evaluate things and coming at it from from uh, an unbiased standpoint. That is a loaded question. Jesus has just redefined who gets to claim the we whenever it comes to their status in God's kingdom. And and his followers are probably justifiably confused because this is nothing like what they have heard their entire lives. And so they're asking questions. Just how many birds are going to rest in these trees' branches, Jesus? Like you, you seem to say it's going to be a lot. Is that actually going to be the case? most Jews would have been willing to to concede that some Gentiles might be able to convert their way uh, into Judaism, but not really much beyond that. Like it would have been a few people that were grafted in. It would have been a few people that became part of the kingdom of God if they fully converted over to the Jewish way of life and to Judaism and to become worshipers of Yahweh, but really not much beyond that. So this person asked the question, Jesus How many people are going to be coming into this kingdom? I feel certain in telling you that this questioner was probably expecting one of two responses based on what Jesus had taught and what he had likely heard his whole life. One of two. The first one, I think, is probably the one he was expecting. That a few Gentiles would be saved, but not a huge number. Just a few. This is probably the expected response. Hence the question. You just mean a few, right, Jesus? Like, how many people are, or how many people are we talking here? When you say uh, these people come and rest in these branches, how many people are we talking here? So the assumption here is that Jesus would give the answer, Jews plus a few Gentiles as well. The second answer he possibly could have uh, expected is he could have taken Jesus' teaching for what it says and uh, applied it a little bit more uh, liberally, and he could have assumed uh, that there would be a whole host of Gentiles that would come and be a part of the kingdom of God and come to worship Yahweh, and they would do this. And so the answer would be the Jews plus this whole group of Gentiles that would come as well. But I am almost completely certain that they did not see the response coming that Jesus is about to give. Look with me in verse 20. In the 23 and in the 24. He said to them, make, <coughs> make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. And he will answer you, 
I don't know who you, who you are. I do not know you or where you're from. And then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you or where you're from. Get away from me, you, you, get away from me all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share this banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this. Some who were, who were last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, a lot. I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can so that we don't lose the forest for the trees. But there's a lot going on here. First, again, let's remember he is primarily talking to Jews on his way to Jerusalem. This parable makes absolutely no sense to them that this is how the kingdom of God is going to work. They didn't have a paradigm for this. It didn't, they, it didn't line up with anything that they had ever heard or taught. Or were taught. And he begins by saying, make every effort to enter by the narrow door. Now, a Jew would naturally respond to that enter through a door i don't understand what you mean i was born inside the house that would effectively be what their general position was what do you mean i need to make an effort to enter in through a narrow door i don't need to make an effort to enter in through a garage door a window a narrow door a wide door i don't need to make an effort to do anything because i was born a part of the kingdom that is the my birthright as a jew i am a part of this you see, to be saved or be spared of God's wrath, a Jew only needed one thing, to be a Jew. Or at least that's what they thought. And Jesus tells them that they have completely mistaken the nature of this kingdom. Not only are they not born inside the house, they can come knocking on the door and the Lord of the house will not even recognize who they are. They can protest all they want, but they are not part of the we just by virtue of their birth. They may see their forefathers through the window, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They may be, may be in, but make no mistake, just because their forefathers are in doesn't mean that they are. In fact, there's going to be people coming from all over joining this kingdom north and south east and west all kinds of people will be a part of this kingdom but if you have not made an effort to enter in through the narrow door you will not be a part of this kingdom the first will be last and the last shall be first so now understanding that you can kind of see why people might be slightly offended you're telling me what I've been told my whole life, that I'm part of God's chosen people. I am the direct descendant of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am inherited to that tradition. You're telling me I don't just get in on all the benefits here? How dare you, Jesus? How dare you say something like that to me? You don't have the right. Going back to my silly analogy with how I began uh, I feel like I can call myself a part of the team because of all the time and effort that I have spent watching them as a fan the Jews feel like they can call themselves part of the team they can use the we and include themselves in the kingdom of God 
because their forefathers were on the team. And because they were fans at the game. It says that they ate and drank in his presence. They are in in effect saying, we came to the game, Jesus. We cheered you on. We watched as you did your amazing feats. We were fans of yours. We ate your concessions. We, We ate your popcorn and we drank your Cokes. We sang the songs, we did the rituals, we, 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 we did our part, and we are big fans of you, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, but you know what? You've never been a part of the team, and that's what really matters. And you know what the team does? The team shows up for 5 a.m. practices. They run up and down the court, and they play as a team. They listen to the coach, and they do what the coach says. They run the plays, and they execute the plays. Jesus says, you don't do any of that. You sit on the sidelines, and you do not participate in the kingdom at all. If you want to be part of the kingdom, it's going to take being more than a fan. Jesus says in verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Your translation might might say strive to enter through the narrow door. That word strive there is where we get the word agony. It's the same, it's a hard, difficult effort. It is a bloody, all-out effort to make sure that you make it through this door. You say, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, Jesus doesn't say it here, but I've been around Providence long enough, and we've, we've said plenty that, that the kingdom of God is about grace and that grace is how you enter through the narrow door, not, not striving and, and, and works. What, I, what happened to, to, to salvation being a, a gift of God? All of that is absolutely true. It is grace through faith. You don't enter into the kingdom by virtue of your good works. That is not your ticket. But you also don't get in without them. James 2 says it this way, in the same way, faith, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without, without works, and I will show you faith by my works. The idea here is that you can't claim to be on the team and then never show up for practice. Not only will you never play in a game if you don't show up for practice, you will show that you were never a part of the team in the first place. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you don't don't earn your place by going through this narrow door, but instead what you do is you work and you work out your salvation, as Peter says, and this is a part of what it means to be in the kingdom and to be a part of the kingdom. Yes, it takes the, the, the grace of Christ to be able to bring you on the team. And yes, that is a gift. But if you do not respond in repentance, you are not a part of the team. Pastor Alistair Begg says it this way, It is by our striving to enter in at the narrow gate that we give evidence of the fact that the Spirit of God is striving within Let me say that again. It is by our striving to enter in at the narrow gate that we give evidence of the fact that the Spirit of God is striving within us. The two go hand in hand. 
Lord, help us when we put our faith in our heritage, our family, our parents, or our works. None of those are how we enter into the kingdom. That is a wide open door that leads straight to hell. Your faith must be your own. And your faith is evidenced in your striving to do those good works. If you aren't striving to be more like Jesus, you should probably be asking if you're actually on the team. But the beauty of the gospel is this, that none of us should be on this team. So whenever this, this, Jewish, this Jewish questioner asks the question and he's expecting the answer to be Jews plus something, uh, either a little or Jews plus a lot, and then Jesus comes back and says, you've got it all wrong, it's not Jews plus anybody. It is a narrow door and not many people will walk through this door. But by God's grace, some will. Those that respond to his gift of grace. God's grace spreads like a growing mustard seed and a little bit of yeast. It is upward and outward. It is inward and through. And we desperately need it to be both. We need it to be for, for us and we need it to be in us. And that is where we find our hope. You know, it's funny, as much as today's context is radically different than the context in which Jesus gave this message. So different in ways that we can't even fathom because we can't fathom a world different than our own or a, or a, a general like view of the world different than the one that, that we have. He gives this in a radically different context. But in the end, People are the same. So many things remain the same. Today, we still look for a kingdom that is immediate and flashy, large and powerful, quick and easy, painless and plentiful. But the way of the kingdom is small, quiet, and patient, letting the Spirit do His work sometimes in ways that we cannot even see, both around us and within us. That's an important thing to remember in an election year. It's also important to remember when one day looks like the last day, looks like the day before that, it looks like the day before that, and tomorrow is probably going to look a lot like today, and you're still going to be struggling with sin, and you're still going to be fighting against sin, and this sin that you thought you would have had beat by now, this lesson you thought you would have learned by now is still like coming back into your heart. In your heart, you're still wrestling with the same thing. It is important for us to remember that even when we can't see it, the kingdom is growing and doing its work. That even when we look out on a culture that seems to be turning against God and turning away from God, the kingdom is growing and doing its work. The kingdom is inevitable, but it is not always obvious. That is true in our culture at large, and that is certainly true in our own sanctification. 
So as Jesus preaches these messages that offend all those around him, that lead him to the cross, remember that he knew where he was going. And he knew what was going to happen. And yet he continued to walk on the path and he continued to preach and teach the same message. He did it for you and for me that we could be a part of the kingdom of God, that we too could find refuge in the branches of the kingdom of God. Because this is how the kingdom of God works. It looks like a a seed planted in the ground. Small. You don't see what's happening. You don't even know it's there. It looks like a, a man hung on the side of the road on a cross, forgotten for, for, for all of history, were it not for the fact that he, were, he was the Son of God. Small, insignificant. And yet that seed grows and it bears much fruit. This is the gospel, and this is what Jesus teaches. And it's not flashy. And it's not, it's not, it's not always like, like super exciting. It doesn't sound like, like peals of thunder. It's not, doesn't look like flashes of lightning. It doesn't come with a ton of power. But it will accomplish its purpose. And it is the only thing that we can find our hope in. No matter how, how, how much stronger the other things look, it is the only thing that gives us hope. And that's found in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So as we continue to to go on our own march toward Easter here, just just a month away at this point, just remember that Jesus knew where he was going. And he didn't shy away and he didn't stop. Because he was going to the cross, establishing the kingdom that you might find your refuge there. Let's pray. Father, so often we are looking for the kingdom in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways, doing all the wrong things in order to see the kingdom come to fruition. We want to see the large and the flashy. We want to see the the, the big and the grandiose, but we're not willing to wait for the patient growth of the kingdom. And so we, like Judas, sell our souls and our hearts for 30 pieces of silver in order to speed things up. Father, help us to embrace the nature of the kingdom. Help us to embrace the steady, continual growth of the kingdom as it works its way up and out as it works its way in us and through us let us not rush the inevitable nature of the kingdom and may we strive as the spirit strives within us In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.